Hey there, I'm Critters, Scott Weingart here, and today we're going to discuss tricyclic antidepressant overdose. And this is because I had a case at Janus General. If you don't know what Janus General is, check the show notes. And this was a 28-year-old male found by his roommates, and he was unconscious. They called the EMS. When EMS got there, he was seizing. And because the patient was too awake, they couldn't intubate. They gave two milligrams of Ativan, which uh, didn't terminate the seizures initially. Right as they pulled up to our doorstep at the hospital, the seizures stopped. And they brought the patient in. The patient had vomit in um, the mouth and the nose. They were still bagging the patient. The patient was responsive to pain, looked up at the monitor, and blood pressure was 80 over 40. Uh, there was no signs of trauma and didn't quite know where to go on this. Uh, so we do what we always do if you're at a good emergency physician, which is you take care of the ABCs. Now, since I wanted to get a little bit of better handle on the patient's hemodynamic status and what's going on, um, I didn't want to do the full RSI right now. So what we did is we performed an RSA, rapid sequence airway, and we gave a little bit of ketamine a little bit of propofol. I think we gave 20 milligrams of ketamine, 10 milligrams of propofol, and push-dose epi, uh, I think 20 micrograms. And we got a decent blood pressure, got the blood pressure up to uh, greater than 100 systolic, and popped in an LMA, which requires uh, much less a level of uh, anesthesia than uh, placing the formal endotracheal tube and gives us some time to assess what's going on. And I put the patient on the ventilator with the LMA in place, and this is an intubating LMA, but it doesn't matter for what we did subsequently. And now uh, we, we started to get a handle on things. Uh, obviously, my resident was prepping for a full-on airway, so going through the airway checklist, getting all our equipment, getting all our induction meds and uh, muscle relaxants all set, while the patient now is uh, with a mostly protected airway with the LMA in place, and it gave me some time to take a look up at the monitor. Now, um, after about three or four more minutes, the patient's blood pressure starts slipping down again, and I look up, and I notice that there is a wide, complex tachycardia on the monitor, super wide, complex. You'd almost confuse it for VTAC, except it looked a little bit different, and the EKGs for this case are in the show notes at mcrit.org. Just look for the uh, podcast 98 to find where those show notes are. So seeing that weird, wide, complex tachycardia that in the setting of a patient with altered mental status and seizures, my first thought is this may be tricyclic antidepressant overdose. And so what I did is I pushed two amps of bicarb. I pushed them over about a minute or two minutes each. And the EKG looked like it got a little bit narrow, but still quite wide. And at that point, we were able to get a 12-weight EKG, which showed a marked uh, R-wave in AVR and the wide complex I think the QRS duration was 190 on the initial EKG. And at this point, the EMS folks were able to give us a list of the patient's medication, and one of those meds was doxepin, which is a tricyclic antidepressant. The patient was also on SSRIs and um, some other medications that didn't really have toxicity and overdose. And so also looking at the 12 EKG, the patient had a marked QT prolongation, which uh, could have been from the QRS duration from the TCA. It could also be from some of the other agents like the SSRI. So at this point, uh, we started fluid resuscitation. We were keeping the patient's blood pressure maintained with push dose pressors. We now proceeded, after we had the patient's blood pressure up, to perform RSI with ketamine and succinylcholine. We confirmed tube placement. We got good access. And since the EKG was still wide, we kept administering amps of sodium bicarb 
in an effort to get the QRS narrow. And we'll talk about all the parameters you're looking for in just a second. My resident popped in an A-line and a central line to have good access and good hemodynamic monitoring. And we got on the horn with tox. And I think we'll uh, stop the case now for a second and really go into the treatment of TCA overdose. And then uh, we'll come back to the case at the end. So TCAs are being prescribed more and more often in the United States after a long period of decline with the SSRIs taking precedence. But now that we're finding a lot of the effect from SSRIs may very well be placebo effect. Uh, in cases of recalcitrant depression, I think folks in the psychiatric community are going back to TCAs because despite their toxicities and their danger and overdose, I think they are effective agents for the treatment of severe depression. I have a list of uh, the numerous tricyclics available from Wikipedia on the show notes for this, so you could check that out. And it's also really important to note that some non-TCA agents could cause similar sodium channel blocker toxicity. And uh, two of the ones that come to mind are diphenhydramine. Uh, Seth Truger wrote a nice little case report I linked to in the show notes on that. And cocaine can do this as well. Now, the TCAs have numerous effects, and I have a little chart there from the great Resus Review blog. And so they, they cause potassium channel blockade, which could give you QTC prolongation. They cause the sodium channel blockade, which gives you the QRS prolongation, hypotension due to depressed cardiac contractility, uh, ventricular dysrhythmias. It's a norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and therefore it could cause uh, initial hypertension followed by hypotension. The hypotension, uh, the main driver of that is actually an alpha-adrenergic blockade, which is why these patients get so profoundly hypotensive. Uh, there's antihistamine effects, which will make the patient uh, present with altered mental status, dry skin, and all the other issues you may see from uh, anticholinergic agents because it has anticholinergic effects as well. And then it could actually cause GABA blockade, which leads to the seizures you commonly see in this disorder. How do you treat it? Well, the mainstay of therapy, despite the fact that when I looked for a huge evidence base, there wasn't one, is sodium bicarb. Now, we've done a bunch of shows on sodium bicarb. This is the only condition in which I push sodium bicarb. Now, there's some weird stuff going on here. Uh, for some reason, and I haven't had this elucidated, maybe some of the tox folks that listen could explain this to me, but these folks do not get a market alkalosis and they don't get a market uh, hypernatremia despite pushing enormous amounts of sodium bicarb. So something is going on that actually is uh, affecting how sodium bicarb is utilized by the body in the setting of a TCA overdose. So I don't think the same rules apply. I still want it slamming in over two seconds, but I push these amps over one to two minutes. And if the patient is mechanically ventilated, I've already started hyperventilation to make up for the initial production of CO2. And if they're breathing on their own, then the supposition is they will be able to increase their minute ventilation. The goal of the sodium bicarb is twofold. You want to increase the patient's sodium to try to have a competitive effect on the sodium channel uh, receptors. And you're also trying to alkalinize them because it will increase the amount of drug that is in its unionized form and potentially decrease the amount that's actually going to bind to the sodium channels. So surprisingly, though, you could give an enormous amount of this stuff and not actually affect the sodium or the bicarb uh, in any fashion. For instance, this patient, I think, got in total uh, 14 amps of sodium bicarb and their sodium remained 142 and their bicarb 24 after all that treatment. Um, but the patient's QRS did narrow. So in a true severe TCA overdose, you could give an enormous amount and not worry about things like too much alkalosis or a profound hypernatremia. 
What the goals are from your sodium bicarb therapy is to see the QRS narrow. And really what you'd love is less than 100. I just was able to get this patient less than 120, and I called that a win. But if you get him less than 100, that's great. You want hemodynamic stability. Um, if the sodium is moving, you want to stop when it gets to around 150, maybe 155 at the max, but I stop at 150. And you want to stop with a pH of around 7.5. Some sources would say 7.55. And so that's really where you're trying to go with your sodium bicarb. So you could monitor your EKG, and then you have to send labs. And uh, for these patients, when they're really sick, I'm sending labs every one hour. And there's no evidence for that, but that's what I'm doing. Because there is some electrolyte abnormalities that come from the use of sodium bicarbonate in this uh, large volume fashion. Um, the two things that I worry about in these patients are they are going to become profoundly hypokalemic if you are able to alkalinize them. So they do need potassium supplementation, and you do need to be monitoring their K. And the way I do that is each hour I just send a venous blood gas with electrolytes, and then I have a marker of both their pH status, their CO2, their bicarb, and their potassium. The other one that they can get is hypocalcemia, and that's going to have a negative effects on their hemodynamics. So I'm monitoring that and, and su supplementing them with calcium to avoid that. And that's also on my VBG with electrolyte panel. So I have a consistent one hour marker of those electrolytes that could get affected. All right, so we've discussed the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna give them a bunch of sodium bicarb. We're just gonna push an amp every minute or so until their QRS starts to narrow. And um, it could require a lot. In fact, I was listening to a podcast a month before this case comes came in and uh, it was Sean Nort and Stu Swadron over at MRAP, and they gave a ton. I don't even remember how much total, but I think they used up all the sodium bicarb they had in their ED. Um, and again, in their case, as well as mine, the patient's sodium and their bicarb did not change in any great fashion. Um, so there's something specific to the TCAs there to doing that. Now, I've already mentioned, but I should say it again just in bold, uh, you got to hyperventilate these patients. That's going to help with your alkalosis, and that's going to uh, blow off the CO2 generated by all that bicarb. So if they're on mechanical ventilation, uh, I'll either put them at 10 cc's per kg at 24 breaths or uh, 28 to 30 breaths per minute if I have them on the 8 cc's per kg ideal body weight. And that's going to basically double my minute ventilation and give me a good potential to get their CO2 down. And in fact, in this patient's case, all of our alkalinizing effect was entirely from the hyperventilation. We were not able to achieve any alkalinization from affecting the bicarb. All right, so now I'll put in there that if you do have a case where the QRS is still wide, but you are limited by the degree of alkalosis, you know, the patient's hitting that 7.55 mark, you've decreased their minute ventilation, they're still up there, and you want to continue with therapy to actually increase their sodium, um, but you do not want to alkalinize them further, you could give hypertonic saline, and that will uh, increase the patient's sodium levels and potentially affect those sodium channel uh, uh, sodium channel receptors without making them more alkalotic and will actually make them slightly acidotic as a result. So that has been shown in a couple studies. So hypertonic saline, I would use 3% uh, can be used in lieu of sodium bicarb or if you're out of sodium bicarb. Now, another agent that could be used if you're out of sodium bicarb, because there are nationwide shortages of this drug, and you actually want the alkalinizing effect, is sodium acetate. And I put a fantastic article that I found from Leon Gusso's blog um, about the use of sodium acetate in tox on the show notes for this podcast. Now, we've already mentioned intubation and sedation. You want to be careful with these patients to do a nice clean intubation. You do not want them to become too hypercapnic. That's going to lead to acidosis and increase the potential amounts of um, 
the agents available for the sodium channel receptors and may potentially make the toxicity worse. So first pass success, all the good stuff we talk about. I'm not allowed to talk about airway, so I won't go any further than that. I will say you do not want these patients seizing and they do have a good potential for seizing as a result of the TCA overdose. So if you're going to sedate these patients and you're going to use agents uh, for your intubation, uh, if they're hemodynamically stable, then consider using something like propofol to intubate with, or if you've gotten them hemodynamically stable after your intubation, uh, using a benzodiazepine like midazolam uh, or propofol for one of your uh, components of your sedative regimen for the post-intubation is a good idea, both because it will sedate the patient and it will also uh, raise the seizure threshold and prevent the patient from seizing by affecting the GABA receptor either directly or indirectly and therefore uh, fighting against the effects of the TCAs. So that was intubation and sedation. Then there's always a question of gastric decontamination and or lavage. And if you're going to do it, it only probably makes sense if it's been in the uh, time range of one hour from the time of ingestion, unless there's a known uh, long-acting uh, delayed release product, if you're going to do uh, a gastric lavage at all. Most sources say if the airway is protected to give one dose of charcoal, probably not more than that due to the anticholinergic effects, but one dose of charcoal, and that's reasonable. But if you have any doubt about the patient's airway, they're not intubated, um, but they are obtunded, don't give it. And I'll tell you what happened in this case in terms of gastric lavage and decontamination in just a bit. In the case, we actually did give magnesium uh, because of the QTC prolongation. Um, if you knew it was a pure TCA overdose, I'm not sure uh, whether that's going to be a benefit because the risk of torsades de plant is low in TCA overdose so long as the patient remains tachycardic, but it probably won't hurt. And I don't see a downside that if the patient does have a prolonged QTC to give them two grams of magnesium. It's certainly not a bad idea and it may help. Now, one thing that may be new to listeners who aren't familiar with the uh, cutting-edge tox literature is if the patient does have persistent dysrhythmia or you cannot get their uh, Q restoration narrowed, and you want to add on another agent. Um, somewhat counterintuitively, lidocaine is probably now the recommended agent. Now, lidocaine, what doesn't make sense, right? Because you're giving another sodium channel blocker, because that's what lidocaine is. It's a Von Williams class 1B agent uh, to someone who already has a sodium channel blockade toxicity. But these work on different mechanisms. And so the idea behind the lidocaine is that since it's a 1B agent, it's going to actually fight for the spot on the sodium channel receptors, um, but not affect the fast sodium depolarization. So you're actually just supplementing a better agent for the TCAs at the sodium channel receptor that will not cause all of the toxicity. So that, that's the idea behind it. The evidence for this is not great, but there is some out there. And um, if you're going to give an agent for ventricular dysrhythmias in the setting of a TCA overdose, lidocaine is probably your choice. And if you do use a push, which is generally 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, then add in a drip as well. Um, most of these patients will require some kind of vasopressor support. The agents recommended for pretty much any tox stuff um, is going to be norepi, and potentially if you wanted to, and you're in Australia and this is the agent of choice for you, epinephrine is probably okay as well. Um, but we in the States are more familiar, I think, with norepinephrine. I'd stick away from the, I should say, stay away from things like dopamine, which are indirect agents, and um, I just don't use dopamine for anything anymore. I don't see any real problem with using something like a phenylephrine, but we've just moved away from using that in general. So our choice for any toxicity 
um, that needs a vasopressor is norepinephrine. Now, um, an agent that seemingly is now useful for anything toxicologic and may have a role here is intralipid. Now, you should have intralipids in your ED. You should especially have intralipids in your ED if you uh, treat tox cases, which every ED does, or if you provide um, regional anesthesia through ultrasound-guided nerve blocks, because this is the rescue drug for any kind of anesthetic toxicity, and it's seemingly more and more being the rescue drug for any severe toxicological issue as well. And it just seems if patients uh, in the pericode or coding just always administer intralipid for any kind of tox uh, cardiac arrest. And uh, it might have a specific role as a sink for TCAs as a way of diminishing the serum levels of TCA. If you want to know anything about how to use intralipids, then you want to go to the lipid rescue site. And the link for that is in the show notes. But that is a site just jam-packed with everything good about the use of lipids for rescue from anesthesia or toxicologic issues. And there's an administration sheet I actually have linked in the show notes as well that will tell you how to use this agent for a TCA overdose or any other cause. Now, obviously, the last resort for any tox case where the patient's going south is ECMO. These are potentially reversible patients in TCA overdose. If you get them through the acute stage, then there's no long-lasting toxicity except what happened from uh, the poor perfusion that happened uh, up until they got to you. So ECMO is, I think, a viable option. Now, I'm not going to go into all the ethics of uh, is it okay to use ECMO for a patient that tried to off themselves, and that's a huge you know, societal cost for someone who uh, wanted to end their life by saying, for me, I don't deal with those issues. I just try to save the patient, and I let the folks later on sort out all the issues of whether that was worth it or not. That's not something I am smart enough to handle from an ethical standpoint. So all I do is I try to give my patients the best possible care, get them to the point where they could start making their life decisions again, and then uh, let someone else sort out the morality and ethics of the use of those resources. I am not clever enough. Okay, let me get back to the case. So after intubation, the patient had another seizure. We terminated that with uh, the additional administration of some Ativan. We got on the horn with Tox, and they wanted a few things. Um, because the time of ingestion was unknown, they did want us to perform a gastric lavage. Um, and so since all our Tox folks wanted that, and uh, I know Chris Nixon is pulling his hair out, but we went for it, and the patient was already intubated. We use an easy lab system, and I've linked to that in the show notes. This is a way to make this really, really easy, and we don't use them very much, so I'm sure they're... Uh, a little bit expensive compared to just using an e-wall tube, but it makes it so much easier and cleaner that for the infrequent times you use it, I think it's worth it. So you could check that out in the show notes. So we placed the, um, the huge uh, gastric tube down. We confirmed with entitled CO2 that it was not in the lungs, and we were able to aspirate through it, and then we used the easy lab system to uh, irrigate with, I think, like six liters of fluid. And we just got out, you know, no pill effluent, uh, just uh, stomach contents. And then we dropped a uh, one dose of charcoal down the tube. So we had that done. Patient was still hypotensive. So like I mentioned, the patient got put on norepinephrine. And the tox folks, because there were the seizures, and at this point we didn't quite know what the patient's medications that they were actually taking were, recommended pyridoxine um, for possible INH toxicity. And there's really no downside to that. It's just a vitamin you pee out if you're not going to use it. So we gave five grams of that. We had to continue to administer sodium bicarb to this patient to keep their QRS narrow, and we did put them on a bicarb drip as well. 
and we did supplement potassium. At one point, the patient had seemed to have stabilized with a Q restoration less than 120, looking great, getting ready to go to their ICU bed, and their pressure dropped significantly. They were on a stable dose of norepinephrine, I think at like eight micrograms per minute, and now all of a sudden their blood pressure in the toilet. So we thought, okay, well maybe the uh, sodium bicarb is not enough anymore, it's wearing off. So we gave another couple amps, but I had uh, maybe 15 minutes before that sent another venous blood gas and their calcium came back markedly low, even though we had supplemented their calcium. So we uh, gave a couple amps of calcium chloride through the central line and the patient's hemodynamics returned to where it was. So it's just a very important point to bear in mind that these patients will become hypocalcemic, they will become hypokalemic, and you have to keep on top of that because that might be the reason for their hemodynamic decline. Uh, 24 hours after I checked on this patient, they were off all meds, they were doing great, and psychiatry was evaluating the patient for why they decided to have an overdose in the first place. All right, if you want to hear more about this, I strongly recommend you do listen to that MRAP piece by my friend Sean Nort, if you are an MRAP subscriber. And then I listed a, f a whole bunch of uh, resources in the show notes that will also send you for additional information. Now, before we end, I just want to give a few shout-outs. Uh, the first one is to the folks from MedCalc, not to be confused with my favorite online resource for calculations in the clinical venue, and that's MDCalc. My friend Graham Walker does that. But if you want the best iPhone or iPad app, then it's MedCalc, M-E-D-C-A-L-C. You can search for that on iTunes. Um, they sent me a free version of their new software, and it's really fantastic. I mean, they got this down. So if you would want a free copy of that, they gave me some giveaway codes, and I'm going to send that out to people on the mailing list. So if you're not part of the mailing list of MCRIT, just go to MCRIT.org, and the very first thing you'll see at the top of the page is join the mailing list. Subscribe there, and I'll send out 15 codes. If you get one of these and you don't have a iPhone or iPad, then uh, just send them to one of your friends in your department so that they could use them. And then the, the last shout-out is uh, I mentioned uh, on a Wii a couple days ago that I created Janice General as a virtual hospital to set all my cases at. Well, one of the listeners, who is actually a layperson, Darren Lewis, uh, decided to make a logo for Janice General, and he did fantastic work. I mean, this is just really impressive stuff, and I'll put that in the show notes. Um, Darren is at leadingvisually.com, and he does work for all sorts of uh, logo design and message design for anyone who needs that work. I, I could recommend uh, by the work he sent us uh, as a donation to Janice General that his stuff is prime. So check it out. That's in the show notes as well. Thank you, Darren, for that. With that, uh, I think we will sum it up. Uh, if anyone has some great cases on this, come on over and put them in the comments. If you have any questions, put them there as well. This is Scott Weingart for the MCRIT Podcast saying bye-bye. <laughs>